An elderly man was walking on the beach and he found a magic lamp. He picked it up and a genie appeared. The genie said, because you have freed me, I will grant you a wish. The man thought for a moment and responded saying, you know, I have a brother that I, have a fight, I had a fight with 30 years ago and he has not spoken to me since. I wish that he would forgive me. There was a thunderclap and the genie declared, your wish has been granted. The genie went on to say, you know, most men would have asked for wealth or fame or long life, but you only wanted the love of your brother. Is it because you're old and dying? The man yelled out, no way, but my brother is, and he's worth about 60 million. (laughs) (laughs) Motives, right? They never lie. Motives always tell the truth. Motives are the reason for doing the things that we do in life and ministry. There is a motive behind every single thing that we do. And here's the truth. Motives reveal our true character. They always do. Motives reveal our true character. Who you really are. Your motives are going to prove that. And we saw this in 2 Samuel chapter 1 with this Amalekite and updating David on the battle and the demise of Saul, this Amalekite brought David Saul's bracelet and crown. As a people, the Amalekites attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. Israel at that time was a feeble, faint, and weary people, and the Amalekites did so because they did not fear God. God said that he would utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And so this goes into the command in 1 Samuel 15 with Saul in terms of him being commanded to utterly destroy them. I mean, this was God's heart. This was God's, this is where this was going. So Amalek, the Amalekites were the enemies of Israel and they are or they represent in your Bible a type or picture of the flesh which is something that we are to do away with, something that we are to see destroyed. But this Amalekite in verse 10 referred to David as my Lord. We'll talk more about that as we go on this morning. And he anticipated, wrongfully, but he anticipated that in giving David this news, which would have been very favorable to David, he anticipated being rewarded. He anticipated that, man, I'm going to cash in. Uh, Maybe I'm going to cash in financially. Maybe I'm going to cash in and, and have a position in David's kingdom or whatever he was thinking. Now, to show the difference between King Saul and David, you see it very clearly here. Because let's reverse the situation for just a moment. If it was Saul that this Amalekite was informing that David had died, This, in fact, would have been a very good day for this Amalekite because that would have been welcomed and celebrated news by King Saul. Saul would have said, oh, yeah, man, hey, let me reward you handsomely. But David was not such a man. He wasn't. He was a man of a different heart, different character, even though, even though 
David knew that Saul's death was ultimately God's doing, 1 Samuel 26.10, he still did not rejoice. He was not glad at Saul's calamity. Even though he knew this was God's doing. Even though he knew this was inevitable. Now in character, this Amalekite was like the brother who desired the forgiveness of his brother. His motives were very self-serving. But can you imagine... Can you imagine what had to have been going through the mind of this Amalekite after he informs David of the situation with Israel and particularly Saul? Can you imagine what he had to be thinking when David did not go, oh my goodness, thank you, but now begins to lead others in genuine mourning? Can you imagine what was going through his mind? This is not what I was thinking. This is not how I thought this was going to go. And not to mention, verse 12 says that this went on until the evening. There's several hours. So now his mind is, oh man, whoa. Now, it is important to note that David was not the only person who would have benefited from Saul's death. Jonathan died as well. Jonathan believed, and you see this in 1 Samuel 23, 17, but Jonathan believed that one day, because he knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel, Jonathan genuinely believed that he was going to serve in that kingdom with David at David's right hand. He knew that. He was counting on that. You're going to be the king, and I'm going to be at your right hand, the position of power and favor. But these men had David's heart as well. So with Jonathan being out of the way, hey, this number two slot is all of a sudden available. It's open. But these men did not rejoice in that. They too mourn Saul's and Jonathan's calamity. I need you to hear this. This is so critical for us as a church. So very critical. I need everybody, including me. I need to hear this, okay? Listen. As churches grow numerically, the potential for the emergence of a competitive ministry culture is real, and extremely dangerous. I have seen this movie many times. This is true. If we lack the heart of David and these men, as Midtown Baptist Temple continues to grow, as Life Fellowship continues to grow, you know what what can easily happen? We can start looking around And instead of seeing one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we start seeing each other as competitors. Who who, who are they? Where'd they come from? Why are they coming? Why were they asked to, to give that testimony? Why were they asked to be in that ministry? Why were they given that position? I wish I was exaggerating. I am not. This competitive ministry culture, I have seen it. 
People start lobbying and jockeying for position. They, they, they start trying to attach themselves to certain people that they perceive to be of influence. And they're doing so because they're jockeying and say, well, if I get close to him or if I get close to her, then that means that I can get here. Maybe I'll be considered for this. Not exaggerating. Not even close. Look at Luke 9.46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest. Now, if the disciples who walked with God in the flesh could struggle with this, how vulnerable are we? Were they not jockeying here for a position in the kingdom? I, 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 I want to be the greatest. I, I, I want the high seat. I want that ministry platform. I want that recognition. I want that notoriety. I want that prominence. I am very privileged to serve under Sam as one of eight associate pastors here at Midtown. Sam is very clear. Sam has always been clear. There is no clear number two. Sam's very clear about that. So guess what? If one of those eight associate pastors does not have the heart of God, guess what he's going to do? He's going to want to lobby and jockey to be Sam's number two. How can I separate myself from the other seven? I wish I was exaggerating. This happens in ministry all the time, especially as churches grow. This competitive culture, it is real, and I mean it will burn a church to the ground. Would you look around this room? Please. Look around this room, look around this church. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. There are no competitors amongst us. Jesus Christ, according to Colossians 1.18, must have the preeminence in all things. So that's settled. If you want preeminence, that's a dark desire. You don't want that. That's already, that's not for you, that's not for me. One of the things that, that God has, has, has helped me, and I'm thankful for this, um, whenever you are faithful to whatever God has given you to do, whatever that is, you never have to look over your shoulder. You never have to look around. You, you, you never have to perceive anyone as a threat. Are you faithful to what God has given you? If you are, then praise the Lord. Don't keep score. 
You will always lose when you do that. Well, God has given me this, but my goodness, he's given Mom Mary that. That's a lot bigger than what I have. That looks a lot more influential and a lot more eye-catching than what I have. You've already lost. This is one of the issues with the exiles that returned from the Babylonian exile. And, and, and they, they laid the foundation for the rebuilding of the temple, and then you keep going, you get to, to Haggai and Zechariah, and, and, and their work restarts. And, but they're looking at this temple. And some of them who saw Solomon's temple are looking at this one and saying, eh. And they were struggling not to see it as nothing. And God's like, no, 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 you don't understand. The implications of this temple are millennial. It's something. Listen, if God has given you something, it is something. If God has given you something, listen, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're handing out bulletins. It's something. And how you view it and how you treat it is a reflection of how you view God and how you treat Him. But if, if you're not faithful with, with, with what God has given you, why would God give you more? Can I just tell you, be careful what you wish for. Because the bigger the platform and the bigger the lights are, there's a lot that comes with that. There, there's a side to that that you can't see. A lot of people, uh, a lot of men in particular, in churches like this, they'll covet the, the place that I stand this morning. Can I just tell you, uh, there are times where I wish this was all I had to do. This is, that this was all I had to deal with or think about was just preparing a message. I wish that was all. <laughs> And I think Sam and all the other guys will tell you the same thing. There is a lot that comes with this that is not for everybody to see. So be careful. But when you start seeing people as competition, it just shows that you don't have God's heart. And listen, that kind of heart will grieve the Spirit of God and it will wound people. Right? When this place becomes corporate America in spirit, where we're looking to eliminate people and cut the legs from under them so that we can get to there and get them out of the way, the Holy Spirit will be grieved here. But we saw last week that David had some pointed questions for this Amalekite, and his interrogation was far from over. Look at verse 13. More questions are now coming. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head. For thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. So in verse 3, David had asked this Amalekite, from whence comest thou? So that was regarding the location 
in which that he had come from. But here in verse 13, the question was, whence art thou? This question now was regarding his identity, not his location. And that is evident by the answer that was given, I am the son of a stranger and Amalekite. Now, he had mentioned in verse 8 that he was an Amalekite. He had mentioned that. So the tone and purpose of this question from David here seems to be one of verification. In other words, you said you were an Amalekite, right? Big question. In verse 8, he said that he was, but in verse 13, notice, in verse 8 is, he was an Amalekite, but verse 13, I am the son of a stranger and Amalekite. Now, that is not to say that he was lying, but by now, (laughs) he has to sense that he's in trouble. He has to sense it, that this is not good. And by adding that detail, just maybe this will soften David. Just maybe this will cushion the blow. Strangers were non-Jews who lived permanently in Israel. They could enjoy certain rights and they were entitled to justice under the law. But they did not enjoy the full privileges and benefits of Israeli citizens. David would have known that. And this Amalekite would have known that David knew that. So in saying that he was the son of a stranger, what he was saying was, yes, I am an Amalekite, but I am not your enemy. I am not the enemy of Israel. I am not. This would also explain how he happened to be on Mount Geboa, where Saul and Jonathan died. And some uh, question if he was even in Saul's army. I, I couldn't verify that, but it's possible. So if he was lying about what really happened to King Saul, would you agree? Right now would have been a good time to come clean on that. If he had nothing to do with Saul's death, I mean, he can, he can sense the tone of this question now. Hey, look, uh, David, I was just trying to really get your favor. Here's what really happened. I, I, I didn't touch him. <laughs> I did take his crown. I did take the bracelet. I brought it to you. I was hoping this would have been a good time to, to, to own that. Had a major problem. Verse 14, how was it? How was thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? So God told Samuel to anoint, to anoint Saul as captain over Israel in 1 Samuel 9, 16. So here's what that meant. Despite Saul's ungodly ways, despite that, he was God's king. Only God could install him and only God could remove him. He was the Lord's anointed. Period. It didn't matter how crazy in the mind that he was and he was that how diabolical he was, and he was that. God installed him, and only God could remove him, and David honored that. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 5. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him 
because he had cut off Saul's skirt. Now, David's men wanted him to kill Saul. He had made their life difficult too, right? They were all about it. So to show Saul that he could have killed him, David cut off his skirt just to let him know, I could have taken your life. David was trying to show him, this is, my heart is not to harm you. My heart is not to kill you. My heart is not to be your enemy. It's not my heart. But we see David's heart, even in doing that, he was, he was smote. Look at verse 6 again. And he said unto the men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Now, these men believe that God had promised David that he would deliver Saul into his hand for David to do whatever he wanted to do with him. Now, here's the issue with that. One of the issues with that is that uh, we actually have no record of God giving David that command. But some read that and they take the position that David would have been in the right to actually kill Saul when he could have in this cave back in 1 Samuel. Here's the challenge with that. David's heart smote him for just cutting off his skirt. And in as strong of a language as you could muster in verse 6, look at what it says. He said unto his men, the Lord forbid. The Lord forbid that I should uh, do this thing unto my master. David honored and respected that it was not his place to remove Saul. But would you notice verse 6? This is critical. And he said unto his men. These were the men who wanted him to kill Saul. Listen, in ministry, this is so critical, because life fellowship is comprised of many ministry leaders. And we need to hear this. I need to hear this. In ministry, leaders model submission or rebellion to spiritual authority. We all do. In ministry, leaders will model submission or rebellion to spiritual authority. And listen, both reveal the character of your heart. They do. And the motives that come from that place. This is why David's men could genuinely mourn with him in 2 Samuel chapter 1 when they received the news, not just about Saul, but about Jonathan as well. The guy who now, with him out of the way, that number two slot is available. But like David, they're mourning, they're grieving. David modeled submission. Listen, please. (laughs) Ministry gets very messy when leaders fail to model submission. And I'm telling you, as we continue turning the pages of 2 Samuel, this will be crystal clear. It will be painfully clear as well. 
So when David asked this Amalekite how he was basically so unafraid to, to touch the Lord's anointed, here's what he was implying. What he was implying was, how could you be so bold to treat God that way? See, to David, to touch the Lord's anointed, to disrespect the Lord's, the Lord's, I can't say Lord's anointed, that's a tough one for me, the Lord's anointed, all right? To David, to do that to the Lord's anointed was to do it to the Lord himself. That was his heart. And this Amalekite seemed to have done so without hesitation as the Christ Jesus was God's anointed. And as the anointed of God, the same question that was asked here in verse 14 could have been asked of the nation of Israel and those who nailed him to the cross. How was thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You see, again, you're going to see pictures of Christ all through 2 Samuel. Now, in all the other questions that David had asked him, he gave him the opportunity to answer. Not in verse 14. As a matter of fact, it really wasn't a question as much as it was, again, a statement to verify something. And notice verse 15. And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him, and he smote him that he died. I'm going to give you our first major point this morning. Godly motives are exercised by those who walk righteously. This is where you will find godly motives and those who walk righteously. Now, as important, again, I, I recognize the state of life fellowship. I recognize that we have leaders and we have parents. I need you to hear this very carefully. Righteous leaders do not reward unrighteousness. Righteous leaders do not reward unrighteousness. If David would have rewarded this Amalekite, that's exactly what he would have done. He would have rewarded unrighteousness. Listen, when you reward unrighteousness, when you do that in parenting, when you do that in business, when you do that in ministry, that can be catastrophic. We can talk about being merciful. We can talk about being long-suffering in those times. I say that we should. It has a place. It needs to be a part of that. But listen, when you reward unrighteousness, here's what you're doing. All you're doing is promoting more unrighteousness. That's all you're doing. Parents, I beg you to hear this. Okay? When your children are disobedient... You do not reward that. That is a teaching moment. You have to teach them the importance of sowing and reaping. You do not get to sow disobedience and reap blessing. I can't teach you that. That is dangerous. 
If I, if I reward you, if, if, if I bless your disobedience with, and I bless that with gifts and favor, all I'm doing is encouraging you to keep doing this. That's dangerous. Same in ministry. When you're leading people, you do not reward unrighteousness. That's awful. Proverbs 25, verse 5. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. And so, unofficially at this point, David is the king. This won't be official in chapter 1, but right now here in chapter 1, unofficially, he was the king here, and this serves, unofficially, as his first act. And this first act was rooted in righteousness, which is consistent with the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It will, all, it will be all about righteousness. Look at Jeremiah 33, 15. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. The branch is a messianic reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised seed of David. And during the millennial reign, he will execute judgment and righteousness. And you're seeing this right here with David in terms of how he dealt with this situation. It was right. But listen, righteousness, righteousness it, it has to be who we are in life and in ministry. It has to represent how we, how we govern our lives and how we govern ourselves in ministry. It's got to be right. We have to do right by God. We have to think, say, and do the right thing. We all do. Now, please hear me. Because in a church like this, where there is such a strong premium on knowing the Word of God, a strong premium on teaching the Word of God, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. It is tempting to equate knowing what is right with doing what is right. Well, because I've got the data, I'm doing right, right? No, it... it, No, what determines whether you and I are doing right is if we're actually doing right. It's not enough that I can tell you what's right or I can teach you what's right. That's not the same as me actually doing what is right. And and that can be so subtle because I, I know so much Bible. Of course I'm doing right. Not necessarily. From God's vantage point, God looks at your life and says, are you doing right? Now, if we circle back to the argument of was this Amalekite lying, look at verse 16. And David said unto him, thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's Anointed. So according to the law at this time, uh, the law held that um, 
uh, he that killed a man was put to death. You see that in Leviticus 24, 17, and you see it in other places as well. But David took this Amalekite at his word, and he held him liable for destroying the Lord's anointed. Am I doing better, Lord's anointed? Am I, am, I, am I doing better? That's just a tongue twister for me, I'm sorry. My kids make fun of me. They've heard me mispronounce it, so... Um, and the righteousness in it is seen further in verse 16. Why did David kill him? Ultimately, David didn't kill him because he was an Amalekite. David killed him because he destroyed the Lord's anointed. That's ultimately why he killed him. If the Amalekite was the son of a stranger, David would have known that he was entitled to justice under the law, and David treated him accordingly, righteousness. Now please, as I wrap up, you got to get this. Godly motives are exposed in rough situations. They are. This was a rough situation. David has not been able to collect his breath from receiving the news about Israel, about Saul, about Jonathan, which we're going to look at and see what that had to and what that did do to him before he is faced with a major decision, a hard decision. And in doing so, he knew that he had to address the injustice of this Amalekite who had testified to destroying the Lord's anointed. But listen, those situations, those rough situations, those gut-wrenching decisions, those difficult calls that you have to make, they expose why you do what you do. When David gave the order to have this man killed, make no mistake about it, he would have been fully aware of the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. So to give the order to have this man killed, David knew that he had to be right before God. What does the Word of God say? Then that's the call. That's the call. And ultimately, what brought him here was this Amalekite's blatant disregard for the Lord's anointed, which was a blatant disregard for God himself. Now, let me give you just some basic but critical ministry leadership realities Number one, ministry leadership involves making extremely difficult decisions at times. This was the case here. Anybody want to make this call? This is what I'm saying. A lot of times we, we, we covet, oh man, look at, look at how influential they look or look at how important they seem to be. Man, I really want to be in that position. Do you want to make this decision? You want to deal with this situation? You want to give the order to have a man killed? <laughs> this Amalekite was not going to be a part of David's leadership team. 
Guess what? The easiest thing would have been for David to just say, man, get on, get out of here. You, you don't, you don't, you don't, you have no value. <laughs> You're not, man, we, we got bigger fish to fry. We don't have a king. We, 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 no, man, just go. That would have been the easiest thing to do. We've been there as parents, haven't we? You've had a long day, a long day, and one of your children are misbehaving. You're tired. You're stressed. You know what? I'll deal with that later. And what happens? That thing just... I've been there. Two, please. Just because the right decision is extremely difficult does not mean that it is the wrong decision. The pressure and the pain and making decisions like this can seem and feel so great that it feels wrong to make the right decision. It's excruciating. Where you go, I, Lord, I have prayed for this. I, I, I have gone, I've looked at your word. I, 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 I remember uh, there was an individual that was in this church who is, is no longer here. And this individual was living in a way where before God, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this individual gave us no choice except to sit them down and say, until you repent, you are no longer allowed or welcome to be in this church. And I was uh, a part of that, and I would say ultimately it was my decision. And I sat down with this individual years later and this individual essentially accused me of not handling it right um, and tried to further justify why my decision was wrong. And I was very clear. The way that you were living, it was evident to me that you were not going to stop. You were not going to change. You were not going to repent despite countless conversations, countless warnings, countless counseling, on and on and on, you were determined to continue in this, and please hear me, given the same set of circumstances right now, I would make the same decision right now. As hard as it would be. Just because it feels, just because it's difficult, doesn't mean it's the wrong decision. Sometimes you, in leadership, you've got to make those calls because they're right. Listen, refusal to make a hard decision only intensifies an inevitable bad outcome. What is a firecracker right now? Will turn into an atomic bomb later if you don't deal with the firecracker. And we're going to see this, listen, 
We're going to see this come into play with David so very clearly because as we keep reading, we're going to wish that David would have handled others the way that he handled this Amalekite. And you're going to see this very point where his refusal to deal with something here became something of much greater destruction here. Psalm 25, verse 12, I'm almost done. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. Regardless of the difficulty of choosing what's right, in leadership, you always do so in the fear of the Lord. That's who we answer to ultimately. And we've got to do right by him. You will be criticized heavily. You will be misunderstood heavily. But listen, as long as you have done right in the eyes of God according to his word, you can live with the commentary of the critics. You can. And so when we talk about motives, this is, examine your heart. Because if you're avoiding a difficult situation, because it's difficult, it's hard, it's uncomfortable, and I get it, there are some of us, you hate conflict so bad that the thought of having a hard conversation is so traumatizing to you that you'll just, you know what, I'll just, I'll just kick that can down the road and eventually somebody will deal with it. That, that could be true. Someone eventually, yeah, someone will probably have to. The problem is you're only making it worse. So whether it be your children, in business, in ministry, do what's right regardless of how people respond to it or what people say to you or about you. Got it? Lord, thank you for challenging us this morning about our motives. Why do we do what we do? When we sidestep a difficult situation, when we sidestep a hard decision, because it's hard and it's uncomfortable for us, Lord, we do that because what we're saying to you is this, this is more about me. This is more about my comfort than it is what pleases you and what is right. And so, Lord, we see the motives in this narrative. We saw the motives of the Amalekite and we saw the motives of David. David, though hard, did what was right because he, his heart was set on pleasing you. Lord, may we learn from this in Jesus' name. Amen.